0: Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at com or on social media at orinjsopher. Thanks so much. Sort of interesting to come to the end of one of these experiences. was a gentleman who used to work in the front office for many years. Um uh, veteran we do staff retreats or he'd sit at a retreat and he'd come out the other side and he'd always say what was all that about? <laughs> 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 so uh, that's kind of what I want to talk about tonight <laughs> what have we been doing here? for these last five days. You can kind of come out the other side, it's like, Woo, what was that? You know, how does all of this apply to our lives? Uh, I want to start with one of my favorite quotes from the philosopher, uh, teacher, author, uh, Krishnamurti. He said, It is no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. So these practices we're doing here metta, karuna, mudita, upeka, these, are, these aren't magical thinking. They're not affirmations. Uh, we're not operating on the belief that other people are going to spontaneously be happy. We're free from suffering just because we've been meditating here for the last four or five days, and we're not trying to learn to be more okay or passive about the violence and oppression in our world. I, I want to read a, a, a quote to you from uh, Thich Nhat Hanh from his book, Being Peace. This was written probably over 30 years ago. Many of us worry about the world situation. We don't know when the bombs will explode. We feel that we are on the edge of time. As individuals, we feel helpless, despairing. The situation is so dangerous, injustice so widespread. The danger is close, In this kind of situation, if we panic, things will only become worse. We need to remain calm, to see clearly. Meditation is to be aware and to try to help. I like to use the example of a small boat crossing the Gulf of Siam. In Vietnam, there are many people who are called boat people who leave the country in small boats. Often these boats are caught in rough seas or storms. The people may panic, and the boat can sink. But if even one person aboard can remain calm, lucid, knowing what to do and what not to do, he or she can help the boat survive. His or her or their expression, face, voice, communicates clarity, calmness, and people have trust in that person. They will listen to what they say. One such person can save the lives of many. Our world is something like a small boat. Compared with the cosmos, our planet is a very small boat. We are about to panic because our situation is no better than the situation of the small boat in the sea. We need people who can sit still and be able to smile, who can walk peacefully. We need people like that in order to save us. The Dharma says that you are that person, that each of us is that person. I'd like to talk about how we take our practice, this practice we've been doing on retreat, out into the world and how it applies to our life uh, in three ways. Looking at it as a practice of cultivating resilience. And what we're doing here in a way is healing, healing our hearts and cultivating the inner resources to live wisely, and to respond skillfully. I want to talk about equanimity as, uh, this is the second, so resilience, and the second equanimity as a kind of maturing of our hearts and in the development of wisdom. And the role that equanimity plays in responding, responding to what's happening in our world today. So as we all know, or many of us know, resilience is this capacity that we have to bounce back, right? to go through difficulty or challenge and not be crushed or broken by it. A lot of what we've been doing here can be understood as strengthening the heart and cultivating the capacity to be with discomfort, with pain, with fear, with intensity, without shutting down, without numbing out, turning away without panicking. When we're in a crisis, when we're surrounded by suffering, we need some inner resources to draw on. So we step out of the world. We step out of the insanity, the distraction, the demands, the pressure, and clear some space to start to fill our own cup so that we actually have some resources, so that we have a more stable base from which to meet all of the difficulties. so we're learning how to access these qualities of kindness and compassion and joy and balance when times are tough, right? Because it's easy to be kind when everything's going well. It's easy to have compassion for our loved ones. It's when we're tired, when we're triggered or stressed or irritated, that's when we really need to learn how to find kindness, how to remember compassion, how to not lose perspective. So, the Trappist uh, monk, uh, mystic, and teacher Thomas Merton wrote, Prayer and love are learned in the hour when prayer has become impossible. And the heart has turned to stone. So, every moment that you found the strength or the courage or the willingness to say one more phrase, when you felt totally bored and dry and stuck and lost, that's what we're doing developing that resource. We need this. We need this resilience. We need to heal our hearts. Otherwise, we just sink. You know, we just burn out or we end up in despair. And metta provides some of that healing. So many of you practice mindfulness. You do insight meditation. So mindfulness is this awareness that is free from distortion. Distortion free from bias. And what mindfulness does, one of the things it does, is it allows us to see clearly without the filters of our past and our conditioning, and to start to tell the difference between reality, what's actually happening, and everything that we bring to the moment. And all of the stories we tell about who we are, and what's possible, and what's not possible. So, the insight practice helps us to see things as they are more clearly and to see through some of those illusions and delusions and assumptions. What the loving kindness practice does is it changes the default story, it changes the narrative from one of separation, not good enough, isolation, to one of connection, to one of belonging. And that's a huge source of resilience when we can feel that connection inside, even when things are hard. So this ability to stay steady, yeah, to not get tossed about when there's upheaval or change or uncertainty, this is the fruit of practice. This is the quality of equanimity. So we've been using this image of the diamond you know, with metta at the bottom, compassion and mudita on the sides and equanimity on the top. So the diamond is the heart. Someone asked, well, what about empathy? How does empathy fit in? Empathy is the whole thing. Empathy is the capacity of our heart to resonate, to feel. And depending on how that heart is oriented, it takes on a different flavor. Metta is empathy oriented towards the goodness of others. Compassion, it's oriented towards the suffering. Mudita, it's oriented towards the success, the happiness. Equanimity, it's oriented to the changing nature. So it sees clearly the nature of things. And so each of these Brahma Viharas is purified or balanced by equanimity. What does that mean? So we've been talking about the near enemy, this kind of the decoy, the near miss. It's almost the quality, but actually it's something different. So metta is this energy which connects. It misses the mark when it becomes what we translate as attachment. Okay, so in the Buddhist psychology, attachment, the word that we're translating is upadana, which means something like grasping. This is different than what JMO was talking about last night, the word attachment in psychology, which refers to healthy human bonding. That's not what we mean. We mean the energy of control. So when that kindness and that love becomes, I'll love you if, that's that energy of control. We forget the limits of our own influence and believe that we can control other people, or that it's our job to make them happy. So equanimity balances the kindness by recognizing that, that distance. We each have our own path. It balances the, uh, the preferences of kindness. It says, I'll be nice to you, but not to you, and makes the kindness more unconditional, impartial. It's not about whether I like you or not. It's about how do I want to live? So I'm going to live with kindness because that's what I value. And we have that, we develop the potential to see the good in everyone. So compassion, this energy that embraces, that includes and responds. So equanimity balances compassion. It keeps it from falling into sorrow, despair, overwhelm, burnout. Without equanimity, we fall into the trap of believing, if only I were wise enough, if only I were skillful enough or strong enough, I could somehow heal them, make their choices for them, change their life. And we lose the bigger picture we lose the understanding that we've each got our own journey. That we each have to make our own choices. And whether or not we learn is up to us. Is not up to us. It's up to each individual. So compassion says, hold this tenderly. May it, be, may it ease. May it be better. And equanimity is the part that knows this isn't all of who you are. And it's not the end of the story. It's just what's happening now. It'll change, and it's not up to me. So mudita, this energy that celebrates, that enjoys and appreciates the pleasure, the happiness, the success. Equanimity keeps it grounded from getting too high and kind of merry and elated and ungrounded it knows we live in a dualistic universe and it's not all light and sweet there's the other side so equanimity is the energy that widens that allows and accepts and it comes from wisdom it comes from understanding the way things are so we have we have perspective and that perspective gives us balance So when things aren't going the way we want, we remember and understand it's not up to me and that this is just what's happening right now. Things will change and ultimately that we're not in control of the outcome. So equanimity also is informed by and infused with the other qualities The kindness, the compassion, the joy keep the equanimity from becoming cold, distant, indifferent. The equanimity of unknowing. This is what Jill was referring to this morning. And I fell in the same trap early in my practice. It's this kind of, someone described it to me, a friend, years later. They said, you had this controlled peacefulness. Right? There's a sense of rigidity, or tightness, because I'm not feeling anything, and everything's peaceful, and everything's okay. That's not equanimity, right? That's more of that control energy. So equanimity needs the warmth, the flexibility of metta and karuna and mudita to, to, to stay connected. So again, as Jill said this morning, literally upeka, the word in Pali for equanimity, means something like, looking over or looking upon the sharon defines equanimity as balance that's born of wisdom The, the operative metaphor here is perspective space so it's looking over rather than overlooking it's not that cold distance but that sense of perspective and this doesn't mean that we somehow magically are able to keep the joy and the sorrow in our lives perfectly imbalanced. That's not what we mean by equanimity. Jill said it this morning. She said, it means that we are equally open to both joy and sorrow. You see the difference? The heart is available to life rather than our default, which is to pick and choose. To waste our energy trying to control things, to chase after the pleasure and try to hold on to it, to run away from and avoid the pain. When we let those forces run our life, we end up living in a really narrow space. And we burn up a lot of energy because it's just not possible. So, equanimity is the quality that allows us to see the whole range of joy and sorrow, the ups and downs, and stay balanced, stay even-minded in the face of it all. One of the early texts, the Mangala Sutta, the Sutta on the Highest Blessings, talks about the heart not oscillating, not shaking when touched by the changes of this world. We stay steady And you can imagine if you've ever been in a rowboat or a canoe, like that little boat that Ty was talking about, what it takes to stay steady in the waves and the changes. Right? There's this kind of somatic poise that's needed to keep from tipping over. And we all have moments. We all know this quality. For me, they were often in nature. On a, on, a hike, on a hike, and you get to a view or a lookout. And all of a sudden, you just get that perspective on your life. It's like everything's just the way it is. The heart gets wide enough to accept it all. And we're not papering over the pain. We're not blocking out the joy. It's just, okay, this is how it is. Can be with this. Equanimity is that energy that allows, that widens. And this is a fruit of practice. So, in the early Buddhist texts, this was an oral culture, so all of the texts were memorized. One of the pedagogical devices was lists, lots of lists to remember things. And so, if you look at the teachings that come out of early Buddhism, equanimity always occurs at the end of the list it's either the last factor or one of the last factors the brahma viharas the seven factors of awakening Uh, the ten paramis the 16 stages of of, uh, purification of insight equanimity is either the last one or towards the end because the understanding is it's it's something that ripens slowly over time So This equanimity itself is a kind of resilience, that ability to have a wider space in our heart to live in. What that does is it it gives us the capacity to act from a place of balance and clarity rather than fear, panic, reactivity, or habit. And that only comes when we're able to allow the heart to open beyond the confines of our preferences, that narrow sense of the circumstances under which I feel comfortable. How do we move beyond the confines of our preferences? Well, we got to feel uncomfortable, right? That's how we learn, you know? it's it's uh it's quite a journey for me as a hetero white male to sit up here and teach and learn you know and get feedback and a couple of you have given me feedback and i'm so grateful you know for the discomfort because that's how we grow that's how we learn so where does equanimity come from how does it mature how does it grow so this is the second way i want to talk about bringing our our practice from retreat into our life. That equanimity is a kind of maturing of the heart that comes from developing wisdom. So we've talked about these Brahma Viharas as different ways of seeing, right? Metta is seeing the good. Karuna, compassion, is about tuning into the suffering, the pain, and the heart responds with compassion. The empathic heart, the resonant heart, mudita appreciative joy sees the success and the happiness and then the empathic heart responds by rejoicing and celebrating so equanimity sees and attunes to change it sees the changing nature of things it sees the ups and downs of life without getting tossed around the sharon tells this lovely story that really for me captures captures this in in a very light way she says so you know there's a grand grandparent at the park with the grandchild and the grandchild's playing in the sandbox with the shovels and the buckets and the shovel breaks right and the child comes over to the grandparent crying my shovel broke my shovel broke right so what do you do You don't get down on your knees and start wailing, right? Like, oh my God, the shovel broke, right? It's going to freak the kid out. (laughs) This is not helpful. This is the near enemy of compassion, falling into sorrow, right? We also don't say, get over it, kid. It's just a shovel, (laughs) right? (laughs) That's either indifference or cruelty, (laughs) depending on the tone. No, the grandparent says, yeah, it's all right shovels break, right? Shovels break because you've been there. <laughs> you've broken your favorite mug and you've gotten in a car accident and you've stained your favorite blouse. And it's like, that's life. Things break. It's a small example, but that's the wisdom of equanimity. It comes from having lived through things, but it doesn't just happen on its own. We actually have to be present. We have to be paying attention, and the heart has to be available to feel what's happening for the learning to occur, for the maturing to happen. So I was talking with someone earlier today about this, and the analogy that I like to use is it's like driving somewhere. So if you're driving somewhere new and you're sitting in the passenger seat versus if you're driving somewhere new and you're sitting in the driver's seat, In which role is it more likely that you'll remember how you got there? If you're driving, you need to pay attention. It's more likely you're going to remember how you got there and have learned the route. When you're in the passenger seat, you can be talking, flipping the radio, playing with your phone, looking out the window. You don't have to pay attention. So you're not going to learn. You're not going to gain the information and the knowledge and the understanding of how you got from point A to point B. So this practice means that we are inhabiting our lives more fully. We're in the driver's seat, paying attention to and feeling what's happening. That's how the heart learns. So the Buddha talked about what we learn, what the heart understands in relation to equanimity. He described it as four different polarities. He said this, our life is, a, is just these four pairs just cycling through he called them the worldly winds the loka dhamma so these are pleasure and pain praise and blame gain and loss fame and shame and our life is just changing conditions one day it's up the next day it's down is from the Buddha. He said, they blame those who remain silent. They blame those who speak much. They blame those who speak in moderation. <laughs> there is none in this world who is not blamed. This is the nature of things. So when we don't understand this, when we don't remember this, when the pleasure and the gain and the fame or the praise comes, the mind becomes obsessed. We get attracted to it and obsessed with it and fixated on it. And we see the results of this, the willingness to exploit, to dominate, to try to extract every last ounce of resources or profit from the planet, from communities. Based on what? Power, money, fame, gain, pleasure, praise, these worldly winds that just keep changing. The Buddha said that we should train ourselves to see it as it is, properly, with wisdom. This gain, this praise, this fame, this pleasure is impermanent, fragile, subject to change. It's just a changing condition. It's not who we are. It doesn't define us. It doesn't mean anything about our life. It's just a series of changes. Equanimity is the balance that comes when we really understand this. Here's Sharon again. She writes in her book, Loving Kindness, this is the nature, the very nature of life. No one in this world experiences only pleasure and no pain and no one experiences only gain and no loss when we open to this truth we discover that there's no need to hold on or to push away rather than trying to control what can never be controlled we can find a sense of security in being able to meet what is actually happening This acceptance is the source of our safety and confidence. This is the nature of life, right? The cycles of the seasons, day and night, the in-breath and the out-breath, birth and death. We really look at it. We start to see how insane it is to only want one half of the deal. It's like only wanting to breathe in and never breathe out. If someone said to you, hey, what are you going to do today? I'm just going to breathe in. You'd be like, all right, you know. And yet, how do we go about our lives, right? It's just going to get better and better. Get more and more praise and gain. People are going to like me and love me more and more. Good luck. <laughs> Sometimes i like to think about the image of a seesaw right when we were kids and we'd ride the seesaw in the park like it didn't come as a shock when you go down you you get it like that's what this does right and if you were really smart you kind of kept your legs out in case your partner jumped off that you know you know like anything's possible here So I want to tell you a couple of other stories of equanimity and action, just in small ways, this understanding of the changing nature. This one is from Michelle McDonald, one of our teachers that Jill mentioned. So um, down in Southern California, in Joshua Tree, there's a big retreat center. And uh, they have an insight meditation retreat every year. It's been happening for many, many years. Large, large retreat, like over 120 people and uh so this one retreat this is like back in the 80s you know so just like here where we have the coat room but it's it's southern california so it's outside everyone puts their shoes you know all their slippers and sandals and shoes outside so one day everyone comes out of the teaching all the shoes are gone <laughs> and there's this one monk on retreat and michelle said that so you know people are like super agitated like where shoes you know this one monk who's on the retreat comes out and he looks around oh no shoes and he just kept walking it's just like gain and loss like, you know sometimes your shoes are there sometimes they're gone so I, as part of my training um over the years i spent some um some months over a number of years at one of the thai forest monasteries in england where my teacher was the abbot for 20 years and um some of you who know me or have practiced with me before know i've had various uh, kinds of adventures with with my health over the years and so um I have a digestive condition that the, the digestive disorder is common in jewish men and you know i need to be careful what i eat and so forth so everyone at the monastery knew that like you know onagarka and Yanniko can't eat these things and be careful with the food and da, 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 da. so there was this other guest at the monastery um englishmen who uh one day were cooking in the kitchen and kind of in sort of you know what I what I guess was uh, sort of natural British parlance he says he says to me what is your affliction <laughs> 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 so I uh, so it's kind of an interesting way of putting it so uh but you know I pause and I say yeah, that's really interesting because I don't experience it that way I experience it as a condition and so it's so right there in that perception The difference between like this awful thing that shouldn't be happening versus, oh, this is just a changing condition. Some days it's like this, other days it's like that. Another way that equanimity manifests in our lives is as non-reactivity. So not taking things personally and also not taking the bait in conversations and relationships when people say or do something that might be a little stimulating or triggering even if we have a reaction to not let that determine how we relate this is from um, a book by john powell called why am i afraid to tell you who i am so he writes the fully human person is an actor not a reactor there is a syndicated columnist, Sidney Harris, who tells the story of being accompanied by his friend to a newsstand. The friend greeted the newsman very courteously, but in return received gruff and discourteous service. Accepting the newspaper that was shoved rudely in his direction, the friend of Harris politely smiled and wished the newsman a nice weekend. As the two friends walked away down the street, the columnist asked him, Does he always treat you so rudely? Yeah unfortunately he does and are you always so polite and friendly to him yeah i am why are you so nice to him when he's so unfriendly to you because i don't want him to decide how i'm going to act this is the way marshall rosenberg the founder of nonviolent communication put it i never have to worry about another person's response only how I react to what they say. Right? Same principle. So that capacity to not get pulled into someone else's energetic orbit, to not let their thing determine your experience or how you respond, that's based in equanimity. Now the key here is that this doesn't mean we don't feel. It doesn't mean we might not still experience some kind of impact or response in our heart. It means having the courage to open to that and having the space to be with it without that one little response determining everything about the moment. There's a very powerful story in the in the canon about... Uh, when the buddha's two chief disciples sariputta and moggallana passed away so these were two of the first people who um, became fully enlightened under the buddha's guidance in the very very early years of his 45 45 year teaching career and they were like his best friends like you know his right hand and left hand companions and so this is the record of the um, sermon he gave to the assembly of monks and nuns after his two closest friends and chief disciples passed away. This is what he said, or what we have recorded of him having said. Friends, monks, nuns, it is just as if the largest branch would break off of a great tree, standing possessed of heartwood, Friends, this assembly appears to me empty now that Sariputta and Moggallana have passed into final Nibbana, died. It's wonderful. It's amazing that when such a pair of disciples has passed into Nibbana, there is no sorrow or lamentation in the Tathagata. That's how he referred to himself. Sorrow and lamentation are translations The English words don't actually capture what he's referring to. But listen to the metaphor he's using. It's like a branch of a great tree had broken off. I look out at the assembly and it's like it's empty. Clearly there's loss. He's clearly feeling something. And yet the mind stays balanced. It doesn't tip into despair, unhealthy grief. Lamentation. Why has this happened? It should be otherwise. So, equanimity doesn't mean we don't feel things, it means we have the space to be with it. So, Jill earlier this morning uh, brought forth this image that's, that we get from the texts of a mountain, like an unmoving mountain. That can sometimes have this connotation, right, of sort of stoic and not feeling anything. So, I wanted to offer a few other images. So we have that image of the boat that Tai offers, right? Staying balanced in the boat. You can think of the image of someone surfing. There is this poise. It's very dynamic. Or if you've ever seen someone walking on a slack line, you know what that is? It's like a tightrope, a little bit thicker, tied between two trees. And if you tense up, you can't balance. You have to relax and allow the whole body to move with the changes so equanimity is this dynamic poise it's responsive it's actually that we're always out of balance a little bit balance isn't a thing it's not a fixed state it's always changing it's always shifting so it's a state of relaxation of deep connection. You have to feel what's happening to stay balanced and respond. And as I've been saying, this, this spaciousness comes from having perspective, from not losing the bigger picture. So Knockaway, a couple of nights ago, had that image of the blue dot, the earth as a blue dot, keeping perspective on our life. This is uh, from a theoretical physicist and cosmologist, a colleague of of ours, a colleague and friend of ours, uh, shared this with me, Lawrence Krauss. So He writes, the amazing thing is that every atom in your body came from a star that exploded. And the atoms in your left hand probably came from a different star than those in your right. It really is the most poetic thing about physics. We're all stardust. You couldn't be here if stars hadn't exploded because the elements, the carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, iron, all the things that matter for evolution weren't created at the beginning of time. They were created in the nuclear furnaces of stars. And the only way they could get into your body is if those stars were kind enough to explode. So can we remember this larger perspective, right? When things aren't going our way, when things get hard, when there are no shoes, when the boat starts rocking. Can we remember the mystery when we're faced with the tragedy? This is how it is. It's like this now. Acknowledge the truth, open to it, see it clearly, without denial, and be that person that's able to stay calm on the stormy seas. So this is how equanimity grows, how it matures, by going through the changes of our life and being willing to feel them, being willing to experience the pain, the heartbreak, the loss, and through that finding the balance point, how do we find it by losing it, back and forth? So the third way I'd like to third thing I want to touch on is, is this sense of responding, how equanimity helps us respond. And I don't need to tell you that we're living through challenging times. Whether we're talking about fundamentalism, xenophobia, injustice, the breakdown of democracy, climate change. The question is, how do we hold this? And what do we do? What can we do? So For me, these practices we've been exploring this week of the Brahma Viharas and equanimity, they hold a key to healing and to being able to respond. Because it's too much. I don't know about you, but it's more than my heart can hold. A billion animals in Australia lost in those fires. I just, the personality can't hold it. It's too big. So these Brahma Viharas are known as the immeasurables. They're boundless states because they take us beyond the the limits of our heart from the personal to the transpersonal. We need that connection with something larger than ourself to hold the immensity of what's happening, not to hold it, to open to it. As we've been chanting in the evening, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. That's what we're attuning to That's the frequency that we're picking up and letting our hearts resonate with. And we need all of them to be with what's happening. We need the balance of the joy and the sorrow, the kindness and the equanimity. If we only look at the bright side, then we don't act. If we only look at the pain and the dark side... The problems, and we get cynical or we get paralyzed. We fall into despair. This is from Joanna Macy. We are called to not run from the discomfort and not run from the grief or the feelings of outrage or even fear. If we can be fearless... If we can be with our pain, it turns. It doesn't stay static. It only doesn't change if we refuse to look at it. But when we look at it, when we take it in our hands, when we can just be with it and keep breathing, then it turns. It turns to reveal its other face. And the other face of our pain for the world is our love for the world, our absolutely inseparable connectedness with life. And this is what we've been learning here, how to open to the pain, how to learn to be with it, to hold it. And part of that journey, part of that learning is having enough trust in this path, in our own hearts, and in the natural cycle of things, to let the heart close when it's too much. So Your heart is probably more open right now than you realize, regardless of what kind of week you've had. And you've probably experienced it opening and closing over the course of these days, and it will close up again when you leave here, and that process is painful, right? We want the heart to be open. We like it when it's open, but remember night and day, in-breath, out-breath, that's just the nature of things. They come and they go. It opens and it closes, so the tendency is when the heart starts to close, we say, no, 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 don't close. Wait, 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 right? We try to like stop it or somehow pry it open. Have you ever seen a bud in the spring opening? It's so tender. And they start to open at the day. And then at night when it gets cold, they close up again to protect themselves when the conditions change. And if you start messing with those puddles and trying to pry them open, that's not so good for the bud. The more we can trust our heart to close and let it do that, the more it will trust us to open and just keep going through those cycles. So This wisdom of equanimity that sees the changes, that holds the perspective, that brings together all of these qualities, it also helps us to act, to respond. First and foremost, because we're not flipping out. We're not lost in the reactivity so we can start to see more clearly. So in the Buddhist psychology, this is kind of the last thing I wanna share with you tonight. Action is broken down into three parts. Any action we take, there's the intention, there's the skillfulness of the execution, And then there's the result. So the first two pieces are the things that we have some measure of influence over. We can become aware of our intentions and choose them more more consciously. We can bring all of our wisdom and experience and resources to bear on the execution and try to do it in the most skillful way possible. But what happens next, the results, that's not up to us because we don't control the context there are too many variables and yet what do we do we base the value of our actions on the results and we judge ourselves this is from thomas merton again do not depend on the hope of results you may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and may achieve no result at all, or even results opposite to what you expect. As you get used to this idea, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, the truth of what you do for itself. We place our focus on the things that we can actually influence, our intention and the skillfulness, and then we let go. We let go of the outcome. And it's equanimity that gives us the capacity to do that. It gives us the space and the balance, the perspective to not react to the situation, to be the one who stays calm in the boat in the middle of the storm. Which doesn't mean that we don't feel anything, it doesn't mean we don't feel scared, it doesn't mean we don't feel heartbroken. It means that those feelings don't define who we are. That they don't have to determine how we respond. Shovels break. It means that we have the poise to make a conscious choice. and that we have the wisdom to recognize that the outcome isn't up to us. And it's when we recognize that that we really have the power and the courage to act. It is no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. We've been training here. We've been preparing here. The real work happens tomorrow. Thank you for your kind attention. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. So we have a little bit of time for some walking, and uh, then we'll be uh, doing some chanting. And if you have not yet been able to come to the chanting, I have a special offer for you, since it's our last night, I invite you all to come. And what we'll do is we'll chant and then anyone who's really beat and needs to get some rest can go ahead and take your rest. And those who have some energy, we can stay and sit for a little bit. So we see you at nine. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit DharmaSeed.com